Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, happy holidays. The Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. If you would like to show some support this holiday season, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Uh, is it that I say that right? Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Support your favorite obscure literary podcast this holiday season. Come on, you know you want to. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Chant it like a mantra. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Oh, man. This is annoying. Thank you. Happy holidays. The holidays are annoying. Okay. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person and just one hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It sure is nice to be with you. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. I've got Bud Smith back on the program. Bud Smith has a new book out. It is called Work, available from Civil Coping Mechanisms. It's a work of nonfiction. It's about his life, working construction jobs. It's about his life growing up on a campground in New Jersey. It's about his family. It's about, uh, you know, the way that he works on his writing, writing a novel, like over the course of a thousand consecutive lunch breaks, that sort of stuff. You guys heard some of this last time Bud was here. He's back. He was just over here. Had a great time talking to him. Good to see him and uh, happy for him as he uh, publishes this new book. So Bud Smith coming up in just a moment. I do want to address uh, one quick listener note or a tweet I got from a listener named Emma. She says, hello, Brad. Glad you're asking for listener questions. I would like to hear about your journey from being the grandson of a butcher to vegan. I just heard um, uh, one mention of this on the Ben Laurie episode of your show and would love to know more, please. So, yeah, uh, thanks for writing, Emma. My, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was a butcher. He and his brothers were all butchers. And uh, they had a uh, butcher shop in uh, Louisiana called the Listy Meat Market. <laughs> 
which is defunct. It's been defunct for a long time, but the listy meat market was a thing in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, my grandfather, lots of brothers, they all worked there. They all ate meat three meals a day, nothing but meat. And they had very complicated cardiovascular health as they aged all but one of them. Really? My grandfather lived almost to 80. He died at 79, but uh, I want to say three or four of his brothers had heart attacks when they were in their sixties. And if they didn't die in their sixties, their, their health was compromised. Their heart health was compromised pretty severely as they got older. And uh, I think that made an impression on me when I was a kid. I remember going to my uncle T boy's house and that was his name. I don't even uh, actually know off the top of my head what his actual name was. He was just uncle T boy. He was my, my grandfather's brother. I remember being at T boy's house in, uh, you know, the country in Louisiana. And I remember seeing like the old slaughterhouse. I think it was at T boy's house somewhere out there. This is like a memory from my deep childhood. And it wasn't some sort of sophisticated operation. It was like, this is the slaughterhouse. We sort of lock the cow into this little space here. And then we have a shotgun. It was that kind of conversation. I think that made an impression on me when I was like six years old or whatever it was. And I don't want to make that sound too dramatic. I'm just saying it was one of those things where you were like, Oh, so it was that it was watching my grandfather's health deteriorate. He had four heart attacks between, uh, when I was like, you know, 12 to like 20 or something. And then uh, I went to college, uh, you know, I was a hippie and Boulder and, uh, I was getting into Buddhism. I, I took bongo, you know, like bongo lessons for college credit. I, uh, you know, you do psychedelics a little bit. You start to read, uh, books about the stuff. It was that kind of stuff. It was like a confluence of, of things. And, you know, I think that my interest in Buddhism, uh, was persuasive. I think when I started to read books about, you know, what happens to animals in factory farms, what happens to animals that get them to your plate? Uh, what are the ecological consequences of that? Like the case was made in a way that I found persuasive. Now I say that, and I, I have to add that there are so many different approaches to food choice, and there are so many persuasive cases made out there. And I know this for a fact because I read them and I'm, persu I'm persuaded by them. Like I can be persuaded. Like you give me a book on the Atkins diet and I read it and I'm like, Hey, what am I doing in my life? Should be eating bacon and butter and cheese. And I, I would be like in robust health. I should be eating paleo. Why am I, you know, all these grains, I have grain brain. What am I doing to myself with these grains? No, I should be eating the Mediterranean diet. I want to live as long as the people in Sardinia. Look at how many centenarians live in Sardinia. No. What about Okinawa? They eat a lot of fish. Look at that beautiful 104 year old woman gardening and riding a bicycle. Do you see what I'm saying? It goes on and on. It spirals. It's never ending. At some point you have to settle. I think what I did and what I've, I guess, consistently done is I think to myself of food choice in terms of a vast library of books where you have all these different people making persuasive cases. And you know what? I say this, I could have a blind spot. Maybe the science is settled. Maybe there really is a definitive answer. Maybe this has all been done and it, I'm just missing it. But it seems to me that the science is not like totally settled. It thinks it seems like there's lots of very intelligent scientists making a lot of arguments and counter arguments and nobody fucking knows exactly what the most perfectly, you know, calibrated diet is for the human body. And maybe we all have different bodies. Maybe we all, you know, we all need different combinations of foods. 
and so on and so forth. So what point am I trying to make? I think that when I suss it out, I can get myself all worked up. I can read all these different things. I can feel confused, but then ultimately over the course of my adult life, I've always come back to, uh, like Buddhist monks and nuns, <laughs> these people like sitting in caves, these calm sort of like beatific, like, you know, focused together people. And I think of them and like, well, if, if it's good enough for them, it should be good enough for me. Like maybe I could be more robustly healthy if I was eating like free range chicken and no grain and like, you know, Swiss shard. But my health isn't necessarily like the only consideration. Like what about these animals? They live such miserable lives. These fucking chickens and you know, like just, I don't want to be a part of it. Now, if, if I lived in a, in a set of circumstances where I did not have access to produce, I would be a hunter. I would hunt the shit out of a deer with a fucking knife. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I don't want to die, but I don't have to participate in this. I, I live in California. I can go to the store and get all the food I ever need without having to kill any animals in the process. It seems like a no brainer to me. I don't know. That's just how it worked out for me. I hope that's an, a decent enough answer to you, Emma. Uh, I think that maybe the larger point or the larger conversation, uh, needs to be about consumption, you know, because that is, you know, that to me encompasses all sorts of different things that I spend a good amount of time contemplating, you know, it's like, well, what are you putting into your body? Whether it's food, whether it's media, like social media, constantly ingesting social media, constantly looking at the internet, ingesting that constantly watching television, cable news, whatever it is, you know, anything that you sort of ingest using your senses is a kind of food. And some of it's toxic and some of it isn't some of it's medicine and some of it's poison. You know what I'm saying? And, and so, uh, there's that argument or that set of, uh, ideas to sort of, uh, noodle with. And then there's also the issue of how much to consume, like how much is enough? Do I need all this food? Am I wasting food? Why do I want more? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's about consumption. The questions of consumption, human consumption. The consumption. What, what is the consumption? When you remember when people used to die of the consumption, I have the consumption. I think we need to repurpose that. We need to, you know, isn't I feel like the consumption is no longer a thing or is it still a thing, but we've just renamed it. I don't know. I'm recording this at night. It's late. I'm not, you know, in my normal caffeinated mode. If there appears to be, or sounds like, um, if it sounds like there's kind of like a dreamy quality to my thought process, it's because I'm half asleep, but I'm glad to be here. Emma, thanks again for writing. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And uh, I'm very pleased to have Bud Smith on the program. His new book is called Work. It is available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. It is a work of uh, nonfiction from Bud Smith. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bud Smith. I don't disbelieve anything. If, if somebody's into something and they're telling me about it, I'll just like, yeah, it's cool. Like, I would probably join someone's cult if they asked, like, talk to me about it. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Scientology, you're right up the road. You can go sign up right now. Yeah, I had, like, a, I had a crazy run-in with the Scientologist years ago here. I mean, everybody does, but I don't know. Did I ever tell you that story? No, I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know if it's, like, a good story or not. It's just kind of like a dumb story. But what happened was... I was um, I was editing this uh, literary magazine, and it was just like a print-on-demand Amazon thing. And I was doing, like, collecting the stories, and there was an art director. And the art director was getting this amazing art. Like, she was, like, getting real deal stuff by, like, beautiful people. And I was just going on, like, you know, um, Facebook and putting up a call for submissions from, like, my, I don't know, 1,000 Facebook friends at the time. I wasn't even on Twitter yet. And so, like, I was just getting stuff from whoever, and... Um, the art director was getting like a few things here and there just because she worked in New York City and she had like connections to Broadway people and this and that. And one of the um one of the submissions that came in, she, you know, she was a little bit like um I don't know how to say it. She's a little bit more like a schmoozer than me and she was like, "Oh, we have to put this poem in. It would like help my career." And I'm like, "Yeah, I don't I don't care. I don't care about anything." I was like, "I don't care. Yeah, put the poem in." It was a little thing about like um uh, a blue jay or something. I don't even remember. So the poem got in and poems about birds, man, a little poem about birds. And the, um, so the magazine came out and it just comes out on Amazon or whatever. And I got a, um, an email from this, from the woman whose poem it was. And she was saying that, um, she wants to do a gala release event for the, for the magazine, a launch at like this big art gallery in Los Angeles. And she's going to, it's going to be catered. There's going to be an orchestra and I need to get myself to Los Angeles for <laughs> an this orchestra. Event. They had an orchestra. Okay. So I get there and I'm the host of the event and I'm just like, what the, what the hell is going on here? And it's all Scientologists. This woman was, I mean, it, for real, it was like, she was like married to a, a, a celebrity Scientologist guy. He was there. And well, I was who like, was this? I, who was she married to? I can't believe it. I don't want to start naming Scientologists. I don't want to name names about anybody. I don't want to drop names, but I was like, I can't believe it. And that's where I met Ben Laurie, your our mutual friend. He came to the event and uh, <clears throat> he was just standing there and I was talking to this guy who's like 
once wanted me to write for a Scientology website and he's like giving me like a card about like volcanic vibrations or something. <laughs> and I'm just looking at Ben. I'm like, Hey, I'm not with, I'm not with these guys. I'm just here, you know? And so I explained to him later over beers, like what happened. And I just, sometimes I just feel like life is like that. I'm like, how did I get here and what's going on? Well, you just, you know, you're a nice person. Somebody invites you to something. They like, we're going to throw a yeah, party. Exactly. There's going to be an orchestra. How are you supposed to know? It turns yeah, and out. And I had like I had like a bunch of like alcohol with me, and they were like, "Oh, you can't drink." And I'm like, "What kind of people are you?" See, this is what I don't understand because L. Ron Hubbard was like a chain smoker. He drank. Yeah. I guess you know, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, I was just always like the kind of person who, whenever I did have some kind of event or something, it'd be like at a VFW hall in New Jersey. So when someone was like, "We're doing this thing in L.A.," I just expected to come here and it'd be like a little shithole someone's basement or something like when someone says there's no, art ba- there's no basements in la because the earth yeah yeah true but when they say like art gallery like you know to me like art gallery is just like it's like a joke you know i would say my dining room is an art gallery and we have an event there you know i get there i'm like oh my god this is a real art gallery with a real orchestra like these people weren't lying for once to me in my life but then they were in a destructive cult so did they did they try to recruit you I mean, they, like, they give you like. They didn't the, try to like recruit me, but they tried to get me to write for their website. I think they thought I was, I don't know. I think they thought I was better than I was because I hosted the event and I mem- and I was nervous, so I memorized everything that I was going to read. So I just like I had. I, it's one of the only times in my life I've done like a performance of my work where I have had it all memorized and I didn't have to like really look at the paper. How many pages? It was like it was probably like five or six pages worth of stuff. Okay. Where they, I just look like I had my shit together, where that's never true. <laughs> but I was just really nervous, you know. I was in nice clothes and yeah. was in Los Angeles, downtown L.A., you know. So, oh, and that's how you met Ben. That's how I met Ben. Did yeah. you invite him to there or was he just there? I did, yeah. I invited him. I Actually, I, I wrote to him because I liked his book so much and I wanted him to uh, give, let me have, run a story of his. for the, for the, and, he, and he told me he didn't have anything, which is so crazy. You know, because I know the guy writes, he has like a thousand short stories unpublished in a drawer. But I was like, well, no, no, you should let me publish one because this is for charity, which it was. And then he said, oh, I'm definitely not giving you something if it's for charity because, <laughs> well, I don't know, quote unquote, but whatever. But uh, yeah, he's great, man. His stuff's good. Uh, I, I guess that it at Hobart and tricked him into letting me publish something for Hobart from him. So that's. So you finally got him. I finally got him. All right finally got them. So uh, your new one's called Work. Yeah. I feel like you're really prolific. You write a book a year, practically. Yeah, I try to. I try to get something to come out every year. And um, I just kind of want to keep going and doing that because I figure I'll probably be dead when I'm 50. So it's, you know, you got to get it in now. Why do you think you're going to be dead by the time you're 50? I just think that, <clears throat> I think it's a, probably like a, a good time to expect to be dead. You know what I mean? Like, you can plan on being dead by 50 and you can squeeze in whatever you, maybe you'll get more than that, but you can squeeze in your good stuff until then. And how old are you right now? What's I'm 36 it? today. 36 today. Yeah, today. So you've got 14 years left. I'm fine with, with I got eight. Years. I got eight years left. Time is ticking. You, you, well, you might get more than eight, but yeah, you have at least eight. So. Damn. So you just, but you, like it just makes you, uh, work on an accelerated schedule, squeeze the most out of life that you possibly can. If you expect to die young. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when I think about when I think about what you, what most people think about with life, it's like, oh, I'm going to be here until I'm 80, and it's like, that's fine. I don't know if you're going to be here till you're 80. You might be here till you're 120. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's fine too. You could plan for a long time. Yeah, but 
So yeah, I tried to do like a book a year, but um. And you want to leave behind, like your that's your mark on the world. It's like uh, however many books. What will that be? Fifteen, twenty books. Yeah, I don't really think it's gonna. It would be like that. Uh, I don't think there's a chance of leaving really a, a mark on the world at all. Really, um, it's just something to do to keep the uh, the days kind of bright um, for my you know for myself and and the idea of like immortality through art is kind of kind of a crazy thought. So I don't really I don't really do it like that. But but the act of writing, like putting these books together. Uh, there's joy in it for you. It's fun. It brightens. It really brightens yeah. your day. Yeah, it does. Because it's like, it's just the best kind of art project I can think to do uh, with my with my energy that I have after my my real day job and stuff. So yeah, or during my day job. Because yeah, I was. I remember last time we talked, you were telling me about how you kind of like write on your phone. Yeah. Like at lunch breaks. Like, what's your discipline again? How do you do it? Well, yeah, it's it's it seems to be like since we talked, I still do that definitely, but it's like. You know, things get in the way of writing on my phone. I'll, I'll tell you that in a minute. But it's like, usually my like MO is I try to do most of my work on my cell phone just because it's a little computer in my pocket. And, you know, I just carry it around and it's just easy enough just to pull it out and, you know, get to work on it. You pretty fast with your thumbs? I'm okay. I'm all right. I mean, I'm like, put it this way, I'm a lot faster than handwriting it and then having to sit down at a desk and try to type it. The other day I was reading something on like Twitter about a girl who was um, – she was putting up a post about how she had um, dictated 22,000 words of her thing in one day. And I was like, oh my god. Like I think when I write something, handwrite something down on a piece of paper, I, I'll do like probably like 1,200 words and I'll be like, oh, all right, I'm going to go kill myself now. I'm just not like built for that, for like sitting at a computer and looking at – like the old school way that people used to have to do it, where you would have your Hemingway writing something in a cafe in his in his moleskin with like a you know a pen, and then he he maybe he rewrites it after that and gets a, a draft and it sits at the typewriter. Like I would have never been a writer if I had to do it like that from the beginning. It's horrible. It's like torture for me. But now I'm doing it that way a little bit because as I'm going, I'm just getting more and more addicted to my stupid cell phone, and it's not so much. You know, the writing, the writing is the writing, but it's just everything like Twitter is just distracting and it's horrible. I just see all like the, I get sucked into the news cycle and everything and I'm just like, oh God. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I never, yeah, I know. Have, I know I never have that happen. Yeah. You don't seem like a person who cares about things. That's good too though. much. I care too much. I feel like if, if I could just disconnect myself, I, I fantasize about quitting social media every single day. I'm back into that phase. And I'm, that's the thing too. I don't even trust myself anymore because I go through phases where I like it. And I go through phases where I loathe it. I don't even know who I am. I just want to take a pill to become more of a nihilist. I, w- I, I want like I want to be able to take two pills a day, and and the pills I can take will make me not care about certain things. Yeah, you know, if I could do that, that'd be great. But I, I'm usually just you know anymore just trying to like not not pay attention to things that are going on, especially like it's mostly you know the news cycle and Twitter and everything where it's like. I can't actively change these things outside of an election or outside of somebody doing like a uh, fundraiser like you just did. Um, <clears throat> things I can directly take part in, that's great. But if it's out of my control, I just don't even want to know about it. Spend energy on it. Yeah, I don't want to spend energy on, on something I can't directly impact. That's why I like making art so much because I can sit down and I can directly impact this project I'm working on. It's a personal thing. 
That's why I care so much about my person-to-person relationships with people um, because I can I can become a different person or they can become a different person and it can happen. But I feel like something so far out of my, out of my grasp with with anything going on in society that's outside of my immediate community of people, I'm just like I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I can reach you yet. Maybe I think that's what happens when you get enough notoriety. Maybe you have a chance of impacting the way people think in a positive way or obviously in a negative way. But for just a small individual person, I don't feel like I can I can give as much of my energy to that as 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 some people seem to do when they're but they're they're braver people than me in, in that regard. Sometimes I just like to kinda of hang back in the wings a little bit and sit in the sit in the shadows and just bury my head in a book still. It's like one of the simplest things that that gave me comfort as a kid, just being able to read a book or, you know, flip through Calvin and Hobbes and and, you know, it's kinda like some people find that same kind of relief going to church and praying or whatever. I'm just like I don't know. I don't even know how to impact these things. Yeah. Well, so what, okay. So what your writing process, like if you're on your, you, you, you prefer to write on your phone, but that, that's starting to get distracting. So now you're going to a more traditional, like sit down at the laptop or whatever. Well, yeah. Like what I've always done and what I still do is if I, ever since I've had a smartphone, I, I try to write on the smartphone if I can, when Where? I can, wherever I am. So if I'm at work and I have a little bit of time, I'll, I'll write on my cell phone. Um, and what I just try to do is just, Try to tell myself, all right, so I got 25 minutes here. I'm just, I'm just going to only write. I'm not going to dick around and click around on any other apps or look at anything else. And that generally works. But um, what what little program do you use? What app do you use to write? I just use the Notepad. Oh, you do like the, the just, one that comes with the phone. Yeah, and I'll just email it to myself at the end of the day, and then, and then um, later on, I'll edit it on the laptop um, when the whole project is pretty much done. So it's just kind of like generating a first draft. How messy is that first draft? Uh, that used to be really bad, but now it's it's okay. It's all right. Like, do you go into it with like a uh, an outline in your head, or have you written down like a structure for a story or narrative, or is it uh, something that you make up as you go? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Each project is kind of different. Where it's like, um, for instance, if we want to talk about this book, work that I just did was a memoir. I was writing it as a column, and I knew every Tuesday I had a I had a a piece going up for for a column that was like around twelve hundred words, so I was writing it on my cell phone and it was on my coffee fiction? break. It, this was the first time I was starting to write memoir, uh, creative nonfiction memoir. So what I was doing was I was writing it on my phone, uh, pretty much on coffee breaks on Tuesday morning, and then I would have until the end of lunch to have it a first draft um, going through it with a second draft, and then I would go and I would post it on the website, and uh, it would be live. So it was just like a one shot, one kill, one day, get it done kind of thing. Like a and, but an enforced discipline. Yeah. And that that was that was how this book came about, just by doing that for a year. And sometimes I would just get like I would turn into a chicken shit and I'd be like, I don't have an idea this week, so I'm gonna interview Scott McClanahan and we're gonna talk about his jobs, or I'm gonna interview Elle Nash and we'll talk about her jobs. And then I would just try but as I would try as much as possible to have the idea for a piece and I would try to get it done on Tuesday just so I could get it get it going. Because I don't know. I, I, like, I like doing work like that sometimes where there's a deadline that kind of gets almost imposed on you and you need to do the thing out of desperation. Uh, I think something really magic happens. And I don't think, for instance, like with these columns, it became a book much later. 
where the, even the idea of it becoming a book, of just starting to put all the pieces together, copy and paste them into a document, and then just looking at it and saying, oh, okay, I, I can see where there's things that need to connect these pieces together to turn it into, to tell like an arc of an actual actual story, actually make it into a book that people can look at and say, okay, I see what is going on with this. It's just not a mishmash, which is like, sometimes I'm a little worried about making work that's just to scattershot. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at. Cause like I'm in the same boat. Uh, like I'm, I, I think a lot of writers are starting to work on their phones, especially if they have day jobs and they're trying to squeeze it in whenever they can. Yeah. Or you got families or whatever it is that's keeping you from having like really concentrated time. But the problem is that like, I don't know what I'm getting. I'm not, I'm trying not to self edit for the first time ever on an early draft. I'm just yes. like, and I'm dictating by voice a lot of the time while yeah. I'm driving and shit. <laughs> like, how does that working out for you? Is it like, I have no idea. I'm scared to reread it, but it doesn't feel cohesive. Like, I don't feel like I'm operating according to some plan. Like I'm just letting myself communicate into my phone. I, I think that's, um, as close to, um, completely beautiful as you can get with making work. Just to trust trust the thing and, and throw it all into a pile. And then just, you know, what I like to do is um, like a good example of that was I just wrote a novel where I actually – I'll talk about like doing different projects a different kind of way. Like work was done as a column for a website on a year and then it got through actually sitting down with it and, and making it into a manuscript and it became a book through doing multiple drafts of it like that. So it was like – Throw everything into a pot and then later figure it out, which is cool. That that's usually my my way. I like to work if I can, but every once in a while, I just kind of I feel like all right. I don't want to like limit the way I'm going to try to do a project, so I'm going to try to do something completely different than what I usually do. I don't want to just be like a one trick pony with how I work. So I mean, my work when you read my project, it might you might say, oh, this is a Bud Smith book. It's the same as his other crap, but to actually make it, I like to make it like a new, fresh experience. So this one I just wrote, it's a novel and it was written. What I did wait, was wait, I just, what do you mean, which one? Uh, it's not out yet. Oh, okay. But I just wrote it. Um, I wrote, I'm up, there's a second draft of it now and I wrote it in about a month and a week. So about five weeks. How many words is this thing? Uh, it's about 75,000 words. In a month? Yeah. Jesus Christ. But this is how I did it. So what I did was <clears throat> I took like, um, I took about about 40 pages of a notebook and I just wrote what each chapter was going to be with a couple sentences. And I went through it and I could see the general outline of the thing. And then what I did was I just I just carried around a notebook with me and I wrote in it any chance I had for like a month for 5 weeks. Any chance. It's like on the like I take the train to work or stuff like that or what do you do? No, like I have a regular day job I drive. Oh, you do. But when I get there I couldn't carry around like like my notebook because it's like a diary. You know, the guys I work with will like take it and you know read it, and, and they'll like <laughs> pee on it and set it on fire. You know what I mean? So it's like. And what's your day job again? I work in an oil refinery right now. Sometimes I work at a chemical plant, and sometimes at a uh, nuclear power plant. But um, is it, is it safe? No, <laughs> no, it's not safe at all. It's uh, it's very unsafe. But um, it's fine. Whatever. Um, so how I wrote the novel was I had the, I had the little outline and I carried the notebook everywhere, but when I went to work, like I said, I was just in the heat of this, the news cycle and I couldn't concentrate. So I was like, I'm just going to write on loose leaf paper. So it's like such basic bullshit. It's like, why wasn't I doing this before? Like I would just take a piece of, a couple pieces of notebook paper 
And I would sit there and I would just write on them. And then when I got done with it, I would go home and I would like photocopy the stupid thing and I would cut it out and glue it all into the notebook to fill in the place I didn't do at home. So it was like I was keeping the project going at all, like at all times I could. I couldn't bring the notebook to work. I think most people would just say, oh, I can't sit at my special desk or, oh, I can't, I don't have my magic pen or I don't have my, my, my special laptop with the programs on it to block this or that. And I just like, I'm just losing patience with like that kind of stuff. I feel like I don't have time anymore. To like, you got 14 years left to live. I dude. got 14 years left, but I mean, <laughs> I want to, I want to do these things, and I don't, I don't want to be like, I don't want to hold myself up in any way. But of course, I did because I wrote everything in notebooks, and that's great. I got the project done, but now I have to type it all up. So, what do you, what do you, like these these stories that you're telling? Like, do you feel like there is a through line that connects all of them? Like, is there some larger project that you feel like you're working on? Like, what is it that you're trying to communicate? Why, why do you do this work aside from trying to brighten your days? Oh yeah, there's a there's a there's definitely like a through line through stuff. Like I remember um my first novel was about a guy who worked in a toll booth and like in that in that book there's like a few things that happen in the book where like you'll get introduced to this character and and you know, so now I'm writing a novel about that person and you know, like my second my second novel was like it connects to work a lot even though you know, my second novel is Non uh, is fiction and work is nonfiction. It's like the the places all go through. It's it's some people say it's regional writing. A lot of it's about New Jersey and the people in New Jersey and working class people. So yeah, there's definitely a through line through all of my stuff and like giving voice to maybe uh, parts of our uh, country and our world and people that don't necessarily show up in fiction all that much. Is that what it is? Yeah, exactly. The people who aren't readers and who don't put value in making art so much they're in they're in a lot of my work just because they're they're the general people i usually always meet you know i feel like um i can't communicate too much to the actual person who's you know i couldn't i couldn't write a i couldn't write a book about kids going to art school even though i'm married to one because i don't i don't know about that i don't know what i don't even know what to make of that that'd be the most that'd be like me writing a book about someone going to mars and and building a castle there to be the new ruler of Mars. I don't, I don't know about any of that stuff. But what I do know about is people who are just kind of lost in the everyday and kind of drifting through life and trying to make ends meet with it, but they're not quite sold on, on, on a complete happiness. So what about, uh, what about like editing? You know, you write these, uh, these books and you're doing it on your phone and you're writing on loose leaf paper and, you know, just anywhere you can. And it is got to be there's got to be a pretty heavy editing process because you're working pretty quickly yeah it's kind of a mishmash you go home like so you do the work during the day on the phone or on the notebook paper and then you go home at night and is that when you edit usually yeah i'll usually edit a project when it's all done like i'll throw all into making it i'll go on like almost like a binge of of making um specific projects i'll go on an all-in binge of doing getting that draft done, getting the thing together meeting some strange self-imposed deadline and then when it comes time to edit it i'll try to set up some kind of deadline where i have to have it edited i'll have i'll try to get someone interested in the project even if that's particularly not going to be someone who's putting it out let's say i might you know send you an email hey brad i got i, I just finished writing this novel i want you to read it i want to send it to you by um christmas day put yourself on the hook 
put myself on the hook as much as I can for all these things. And, you know, I'll set up readings in the city where I'll, I'll just know that, okay, I'm setting up this reading to go and read the short story I want to write for the reading. And I want to make it, I want to make it my best short story because I want, I'm, it'll be a good reading too. I know it's going to be a good one at a place where people are really going to go and get excited. And it just gets me like all amped up to try to write like the best, my best short story. Do you entertain any dream of, uh, supporting yourself with your work? Yeah. Is that something you think, like, is that something you're shooting for? Yeah. I don't think I'm shooting for it. I don't think it's a reality, but, um, I think the idea is, is beautiful just to like, think that if you do qu enough quality work, maybe somebody will eventually put value to it. But I don't think you can ever decide the value of your own work beyond just self it's self-fulfilling but you can't you can never give anybody an idea about you they have to decide it for themselves so somebody else has to decide okay so this is a guy we want to give some money or this is a guy like i think about kurt vonnegut who was like working in a power plant and then his like his agent like was like kurt you got to quit your you know like just stop you can't work here anymore you have to quit your job and he was like reluctant because it's just like you i don't think i can make anybody do anything I can't make anybody change their mind. They have to put it to you this way. The, the best things that can happen to you are things that other people have decided are going to happen for you because they have that energy to come at you with it. Like, I don't believe in like deciding something and willing it from a personal level. I think society kind of comes at you and you can either choose to accept it or deny it. But like, and you just focus on doing the work, doing the work because I'm, I'm, I'm a realist and, and I, uh, <clears throat> I've got, just got the bills to pay and stuff. So you just try to stay lost in the work and drunk in the work. And that's, that's fantastic. That's, that's a gift in itself. Makes everything else kind of go away. What about these guys you work with at the oil refinery? Do they, uh, do they ever read your books? What do they think? What do they make of you as like the literary? Yeah, they, they used to read my books a little bit. They, um, they're not readers really though. So the, you know, when one would come out of, Somebody new is around. They'd be like, "Oh, you, you write books," and then that book would be out, and then they would get that, and then they would like they would have it, and sometimes they would bring it in. I would sign it or whatever for them, and they would just kind of look at it. And this is great, this is great, but they don't read, so it's not like you know. Now and, you know, next year another one comes out, and yeah, you know, they're just not like they're not readers. So but you never know. Sometimes people it's, people have to read stuff on their own time. I find like you, you know, yeah. sometimes it could be a couple of years, and then suddenly they pick it up. Oh yeah, totally. But I'm just saying, event it kind of like goes, it goes away, you know. It's like you just kind of, you say, okay, here's the thing. That'd be like they would be just as excited if I, um, if I rebuilt um, GTO Mustangs or something, and I drove it into work, and they could all come and look at the Mustang for five minutes and be like, wow, that's great. And then they're not gonna like always want to come and hang out and see my Mustang. You know? <laughs> they're just kind of like, not like hanging on. Yeah. They're on pins and needles waiting for your next book. Yeah. They're not, no one's on pins and needles in the world. And that's amazing. That's great. Cause I think about that a lot with like people who put extra emphasis on like art is special and art is all you need. Cause it's just like, there's so many people who do amazing things and they don't expect anybody to be on the edge of their seat about, about it. Like, Oh my God. Did you know that Brad Listy carves uh, statues out of mahogany? They're amazing. And they're just like, they, they can't wait to come over and see your mahogany statues. It's like, whatever, like whatever you do, like you're into it. That's fantastic. I hope you stay into it. And I hope you get better at it. And I hope you connect with people. But 
if you're just doing it to get other people excited, you're, I think you're going to burn yourself out. And I think it's, I think it's just chasing your own tail. You got to do it to make yourself excited. Yeah. If you can make yourself excited, then that's, do you ever write stuff that you don't like? Do you ever, yeah, you do. Like, do you ever get to like where you're, you're working on a project for a while and then you just trash it? Yeah. Well, I usually finish the project. I get to like a second draft or something like I've written novels where I'm like, okay, this is, this is good enough, I guess, but I don't want to spend the, all the extra time to try to do something else with it, which I feel like you have to do. Like I've written novels where I've been like, oh yeah, this is okay. I don't, you know, I don't think I need to do anything else with this one. And the second draft is fine and you know, that's good enough for and you now. just put it away. Yeah, put it away. What are you looking for in, in terms of your own personal response to your work? Like when you know that you're on the right trail, when you feel good about a project, like what happens for you like emotionally or... I just get completely sucked into it. I get completely, um, completely buried in it. Kind of. I'm lucky enough that I have, um, you know, it's just me and my wife, and I can I can put down what I'm doing whenever, and, and we we just hang out and have fun. We have a pretty good social life, and we go see our friends, and we travel a bunch. But when I'm doing a project, I don't watch movies really. I don't really read as much. I just focus my free time on that. And I kind of like just let it, just let it kick my ass for a little while. Are you obsessive? Uh, I get obsessive with certain projects. Yeah, other projects I think are jokes, but I'll do them because I like I like joke projects too. And I think sometimes it's great to do both because you know you can be obsessed with a project and it can't be any good, but you can just be doing like a uh, like a throwaway joke project and somebody else will decide that's your best work. And almost just shock the shit out of you. Sometimes that happens. So Ben and Ben yeah. Laurie and I were talking about that. Like yeah. when he was telling me about like coming, you know, coming around to writing about animals, he was kind of doing it on the side. Yeah, yeah. And then people were like, "By the way, these are great." And he was like, "Really?" Like, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're almost like embarrassed. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. That's like I was, um, you know, I, I started uh, I started this new project I'm doing with uh, with Ray, my wife Ray, where we did a book called Dust Bunny City, where it's all about um, a bar crawl through New York City. Now, this wasn't a joke project. I thought this was a serious thing, you know, where it was like I I had this great day where we just bar crawled through New York. And, you know, I just think there's like just so many books written about New York City and people who live in New York City. And it's just such like a Brooklyn, such a lame <laughs> thing. Yeah. But I was like, you know what? I want to I want to do I want to make my lame project. And I so I, I wrote I wrote down all our experiences about it about that day and some of it was like little short stories and some of it was like more uh, narrative poetry and some of it was more like experimental poetry stuff and i told ray about it and i was like oh i got this project called dust bunny city i think we should do it together i think you should uh, illustrate it and she was like "Mm." she's a visual artist yeah visual textile artist and visual artist um she'll make like she works making quilts and blankets and stuff where I told her about this, and I was like, you should illustrate this thing. It would be amazing. And she was like, nah, I'm not interested. That sounds stupid. And I was like, yeah, it, it is stupid. It is a stupid project. And then we, like, talked more about it. And I was like, well, why don't you just draw, instead of, like, illustrating what I made, just, just draw your everything you thought happened that day. So she did that, and then we stuck the things together. And, and so that was cool. So that book came out and Joey Grantham and Michaela Grantham put that out from Disorder Press. And that was a really cool project. And then so after that was done, all of a sudden my wife is like, we got to do another project. We got to do something. So then now I'm like, this is what I'm talking about with like joke projects with like, 
I started um, just right. I started reviewing dog breeds and stuff. Not so much. <laughs> there's like a Twitter. There's a we rate dogs thing. It's not. Oh like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. It's just like um, I write quick capsule reviews of different breeds and uh, anecdotes about individuals, dogs who I know, people's dogs, pets. And so I was writing down, and then sometimes there's a short story um, within this too about like um, an experience with a certain animal and, and uh, a certain dog or whatever. And so my wife started um, drawing these dogs, and she was just – I was a, kind of a joke project to me, but she was just so inspired by it that the drawings are like amazing. She's just gotten so much better. She'll tell you this too just by like – having this project and now like the art is so good i'm like oh fuck i gotta like do a good job on this now so it's become like a project that when i show it to people they get really excited and and i think it's you know it's gonna be like a good thing but it, it just came out of like a almost like a that's good like, that's like a creative accident creative accident yeah and if you can make if you can create if you can figure out a way to put more creative accents in your life you're just gonna have fun which i think is what happens. a lot of people actively avoid with their art they just it's like an anguish but and you're not anguished oh uh, no i'm not anguished by art art's cool i'm anguished by other stuff what are you anguished by uh i'm anguished by like just getting a little older and like getting allergies and stuff which i never thought would happen to me i was like oh man people with allergies i can't believe they're complaining about that i'm like damn it but now I got that, so I'm like, that sucks. Or like, you know, just everybody's getting older around me, and I'm like, oh, I'm like watching, I'm watching them. I'm gonna have to take care of them soon when they can't take care of themselves and stuff. What, like parents and stuff? Yeah, like parents and all that stuff. Where I'm like feeling the times like slipping away. Yeah, a little bit. Where I gotta be like a little bit more responsible, but that's all right. It happens, man. Yeah, it's like I, I found there is like a. It's very cliche because you know I'm I'm 42. But there is, there are moments. It's not something like I spend every waking second of my life thinking about. But there just are moments where you say to yourself, like, "My God, like my youth is gone. Like it's gone. It's net, it's gone. I'm not getting it back. Like it, uh, I lost it. It's it's over." Yeah, youth kind of sucks though. Sometimes. I know. <laughs> it's like so lame. I, I, I was like thinking it. about when I was like supposedly in the prime of my life, and I was like single and like i couldn't get like a girlfriend when i was like at a, at that certain age where i was like 22 23 24 where i would just be like going to bars and trying to pick up girls or whatever but i'm just like i just couldn't i don't know i was sometimes youth is like that's when i was depressed when i was like younger i don't know it's so strange like you're supposed to be so happy but there's so much anguish with anguish with being young just none like, of well, it's easy no nah. yeah i guess it's not easy but there, like you know, there can be. I mean, there's plenty of people I've uh, heard from or talked to who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s who say it's the happiest time of their lives. Yeah, I guess you're supposed to say that too if someone asks you. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, how happy are you? The happiest I've ever been. That's a very obviously. I think that's a very American thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like competitive totally. happiness or something. Yeah, if you're not if you're not super happy, then you're you're messing something up and, and you're less than. So. But if you're like, but if you're talking about how sad you are, then you feel like you're bumming everybody out. Which you are. If you ever talk about how you're sad around me, you're bumming me out. Okay, just yeah. FYI. Just don't even talk about it. Yeah. What, are you, what are you supposed to say though? How, like people say, "How are you doing?" Well, I guess like if you're trying to be honest, that's a long answer. Fine. Yeah. I'm great. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can. You can like 
explain to them why everything's going bad. Usually if you're sad, it's some kind of chemical in your body telling you that you should be sad and, and it's like a chemical response. So it's like you're sad and yeah, and there's nothing you can do about it until you know, until that chemical kinda like gets fixed one way or another and it's either goes away on its own or I guess you, you get treatment for it or whatever. Um you know, general sadness. I'm not saying like, you know, you dropped your ice cream cone. Whatever. Are you okay? No, I'm super sad. Drop my ice cream cone. <laughs> Here's another ice cream cone. You know, <laughs> talking about like a deeper sadness. Deeper sadness. Yeah. But you don't seem like a guy guy who struggles with too much like terrible like. No, uh, I mean I'm just lucky because I have I was born with okay chemicals in my brain, like for happiness. You know, I'm I might be you know dumb, but <laughs> at least I'm not like miserable. Well, no, that's the thing. Like it's a it's a blessing to just have. Like decent neurochemistry, like there's a lot of struggles that come with not having it. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of—it's like you get you get dished certain certain things just by being born, and you, you know, you never know what you're gonna. But do you, do you have to do anything to maintain? Like, do you? Because like I, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. I was like, you know, all this meditation and exercise, the way I eat, like I'm pretty regimented person. But I, I'm also, like, not on serotonin reuptake inhibitors or whatever. Like, I'm not on antidepressants or anything. Like, I have to kind of do that stuff to maintain. So maybe if I were just lazy, I could just take a pill. Wouldn't need all this exercise. <laughs> yeah, how much exercise are you doing? What, what are you, like, just every day. Like, I just break a sweat every day. Yeah, really? Yeah. It's a big waste of time, man. <laughs> <laughs> you could be writing books. Yeah, you could be writing I'd books. I'd have 15 books on the yeah. shelf if well, I just well, quit yeah, exercising. Well, right now, I look like... um. um a before picture because I'm out of shape, but like pretty, you know, maybe I'll look like an, an after picture in a, a few months once I start the Brad Listy workout <laughs> regimen, sweating every day. I, I truly don't. I mean, maybe it's all in my head. Maybe I'm just like, it's like my will be. I've become reliant on it, but like I feel like a different person when I'm physically active and I worry that like if I didn't do it, I feel like I would be depressed. Yeah, you would be, I'm sure. <laughs> Just looking at you, you'd be a fucking mess. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get out there and get your yoga bowl or whatever. But you, but you, but you have a physical job, right? Yeah, it's okay. It's barely physical. It's like as soon as it becomes really physical, we just get like a machine to do it. You know, like a forklift to come. Or but you're not sitting behind a desk all day. Nah, I'm not sitting behind a desk. I'm, uh, I'm out there moving around and doing stuff, but. You know, dealing with toxic chemicals, dealing with toxic chemicals, you know, radiation. <laughs> the fuck, dude? I think the biggest radiation is that goddamn cell phone, man. I'm telling you, that's going to be the thing that gives me cancer. Is I don't, I don't put that thing anywhere near me. Oh, uh, you know, my problem is too, I'm deaf in one ear. So my whole life I've, are you really? Yeah. I'm de- I was born deaf in my left ear. So as soon as I've, ever since I've had a cell phone, I've always had it glued to the right side of my head, uh-huh. which the right side of my head is getting bigger. I think I have like a big tumor growing under my oh, inside of my skull <laughs> yeah it's like you know here's why because i was thinking about this recently like i read a lot of stuff about nutrition i'm very susceptible to all that kind of stuff yeah. like if someone's like oh by the way you know you shouldn't eat crackers like, yeah you shouldn't eat off the lunch truck <laughs> don't ever yeah, don't eat off the lunch truck but no but people will pass along something on social media and i'll read it i'll be like oh shit like i will i will believe it yeah no you don't don't read any of that stuff at all don't read anything only thing you should be reading is links to your friend's short stories or things of you know if your daughter's on social media and puts up a picture of her and her friend you're or a disciplined guy in that way yeah in that one way i don't think i can learn too much online um Sure, there's great. There's so much, so many great things on there, but there's no way to really weed it out. Like, 
So like, what about your reading? Like if you're disciplined about what your intake is on the internet, uh, do you carve out time specifically for the reading of books or do you always have like a book in your pocket or? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I'm always reading. I'm usually, I'm guilty of pretty much just being, you know, I just read novels, so I'm not learning anything. I'm, I'm learning a lot of fake things about a lot of fake people and uh, fake versions of real life. But you learn a lot from reading novels, though. You do. You learn a lot about like the quote unquote like human condition. Um, so yeah, I, I'm always reading novels, and I've recently just really been hooked on these, oh, uh, well, like the classic New York Review of Book ones that have just that whole series of books that just came out where like, I'm just like, wow, this is great. Like what? Like what are you, what, what, which ones have you liked? I just read this book by Tove Jansson called uh, the summer book, which is about the six year old girl whose mother dies and she goes and lives with her grandma and her, and her father's there too, but he's not really in the novel. And they live on this little Island in Finland, very isolated Island. And it's kind of like childhood. It's written in third person, but it's like Bjork's childhood or something. It's very twee, <laughs> but the characters are like assholes. Like the grandma and the little girl, they interact a lot, and they're like mean as hell to each other. And it's just like a lot about <clears throat> nature and and how how people how people can kind of skew everything around them to like their whims, and it doesn't usually make it better. So I don't know, just like things like that. I just read a great book called. Um, my Dog Tulip, which is about this man uh, who gets this German Shepherd in like 1939, I think, in London. It's like right right during World War II. And he just like hangs out with this dog and they, they run uh, after the war. They run errands and he takes his dog to go to the bathroom and it's like... Wait, he takes the dog the, so the dog can go to the bathroom? Yeah. Oh, okay. He'll just he take doesn't the take the dog to the bathroom while he goes. Oh, yeah. No, he'll just like walk the dog and they'll run errands and like... The dog's not on a leash, and it's like this is like an amazing book about a memoir about this dog. I don't know. It's just like that's not an easy book to write because no. I, I like you have that thought. Like I want to write a book about a dog. Dogs are great. Yeah. But like, <laughs> how do you do that? And like I've heard people like I want to say the Coen Brothers had like there's like some story about how they've had like a dog movie in the works forever and ever. But like putting a dog on film is really hard. Getting it to do what you want it to do and. Yeah, plus you like m m most of the time, like people, as soon as they like are going to start writing about a dog, they're really just writing like my dog Skip or it's like. We, a, what was the <laughs> no? What was the one? What was the one that got turned into a movie? It was with like Owen Wilson. It's all about the like golden retriever. Oh yeah, he's like he's like yeah, he's like a golden retriever, <laughs> and he which is perfect for Owen Wilson because he's just so stupidly excited about everything. Wow, <laughs> I'm a golden retriever. Oh, this is great. It's like shut up, Owen Wilson. <laughs> What about other forms of art? Like, are you a person who listens to a lot of music? Yeah, I listen to a lot of music. I just, um, I made a, I made the mistake. I was hanging out with my friend, like, about three months ago, and he was really stoned. And I don't smoke weed or anything because of my stupid job. They give me drug tests all the time. So I'm hanging out with you're working around, like, uh, you know, radioactive materials. Yeah, it's really, it's really horrible that you can't get, like, you know, you can't just do like hard drugs and do radioactive <laughs> stuff or whatever. Because it's just like the radioactive stuff so much worse for you. I was going to say, the least they can heroin. do. So like, do whatever you want with with heavy opioids and and go work with this stuff that's giving you cancer. But anyway, so like I was hanging out with my friend and he was just smoking bongs and I'm just sitting there and he was really high and he had these stereo speakers sitting in his uh, in his office area where he like listens to his records and stuff and he was telling me. He bought these speakers. He thought they were going to be good for what he needed, but they didn't sound as good as his other ones and like blah, blah, blah. 
And so he pretty much gave me these speakers for like 20 bucks. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, whatever. So I took them home and I plugged them into my, um, you know, my equipment that I had, which is just like Bose, uh, like regular, like computer speaker things. I was trying to get it all to work. And it really, I was trying to plug my record player into these speakers and the, there's no phone. Anyway, long story short, what wound up happening was I get these $20 speakers and then it turned into, I had to buy a stereo receiver. I had to buy a preamp for the, for the record player I had. Then I plugged it all in and the record player I had was, was a piece of garbage. So I had to buy a good one. And then I'm like, why the hell did I just do that? You're like, like, yeah. Just, then you're like $1,200 in. <laughs> yeah. I just spent like, yeah, like 650 bucks or whatever. But as soon as I actually had like a nice stereo in the room where I write, well, I noticed now I just listen to music constantly. Yeah. And that's all I've been doing now. I just put, I put, uh, I put albums on. I'm a big fan of like, I'm like, I've rediscovered cause I used to listen to a ton of music when I was younger and then I kind of lost, lost the thread. Yeah. But I'm back to it, and I, I really feel like it adds a dimension to your life. Like, have some music on. It's amazing. I remember when I was a little kid, my parents had um, they had a they had a great stereo system. They used to tell the story about they got it in Florida when they were getting married. They drove down there and they bought they got really drunk and they were like drunk driving home or something from Florida and they stopped and bought this crazy stereo equipment, and threw it in the back of the car, and then by the time I was growing up and was conscious of the actual thing being there. It was like, okay, well, we couldn't listen to it because we need a new record needle or something. And, we, and you know, you couldn't – back then, you couldn't – I don't know, apparently you couldn't get record needles or something. So my house was completely silent my whole youth. And I was just So like, was mine. We did not have music in my house yeah, as a Yeah, it's crazy. I mean – My parents were never into it. But now, you know, we listen to music all the time. Can you listen to music with words while you write? Yeah, some stuff. I can't listen to um, – I can't listen to something I don't know really well. I, I have to put on something that I like know by heart and then I just kind of like, you know, it's there, it's there, but it's hardly, it's not distracting. Like I, I don't want to put on something that I'm trying to like spend time with and learn what it is too much because I'll be like, get distracted a little bit too much by it. Like, oh wow, what was that? Like the, the, oh wow, what was that has to already be worn off. The edges have to be curved on the thing a little bit for me. So, uh, what about like spiritually? Do you have anything happening in that department? No, that's the one good thing about me. I haven't found God yet. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. That's who knows. Um, I moved out of New York city to Jersey city. And I'm surrounded by churches. Now I live on this, I live on this very, very busy street. And if you walk down any side street, there's a church. Um, there's, there's about 12 of them in a, why is it so? Why are there so many churches in Jersey City? I don't City? know. I don't know. They're all they're all around where I live. So I've um, I walk past this one church every day, and it's very it's really nice. So sometimes I kind of like peek in there, and I'm like, oh, what's going on? And and the uh, they have all these signs up on the street: no parking, church parking. Were only. you raised with anything? No, no, I wasn't. We weren't we weren't religious, and and um, you know, I I don't know. I'm a, I'm a little like interested in those like those those stories. The um, you know, the biblical stories where I'm still like, oh, man, I wish I knew all those. But I really don't want to go and hear them there. You know, I just want to like, I don't know. Somebody, somebody's got to send me like the illustrated uh, Sodom and Gomorrah or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that could be your next project. You can yeah. collaborate on that with Ray. I'll, yeah, I'll review, I'll review all the uh, biblical tales. <laughs> Give them like stars for like what I think of them and stuff. Uh, so what do you think happens when you die? Do you have any do you have strong feelings about that? Well, when you die, when you die, anything can happen. Uh, that's that's up to you to you know figure out for yourself. 
because uh, you can't convince anybody of anything. No, but just what do you think happens? Yeah, what do I think? Sometimes I just think, you know, nothing happens. It, it's just so crazy to me to think that, like, there could be an afterlife when I think about all the living organisms on this planet and how there would have to be an afterlife for everything. Especially when, like, I think, when people start talking about heaven and it's like, oh, yeah, it's just heaven just for humans or whatever. And it's like, okay, you know, so, you know, there's no dogs in heaven or there's no blades. Of, I guess there's no blades of grass in heaven. It's just, just humans and, and what, plastic? I don't really understand. Like, Everyone just with their water bottle. Yeah, everybody's just got a water bottle. I don't understand, like, how, you know, so if everybody dies and goes to the same heaven, what's the point of that, too? It's like you have, like, ants that died and went to your heaven. or I don't know. So it's like the whole afterlife thing to me just seems, like, too too complex uh, to even, like, worry about. So I just, like, I default mode to nothing happens. You're just going to die. And hopefully you're going to die when you're 50. So. <laughs> Make it to the ripe old age of 50. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're like 49 and you're like, all right, well, this is it. But like, whatever. I, you know, that, that's all about bullshit too, of course. As soon as I'm like 48, I'm going to be like, oh, it's always been my dream to live to be 80. You know? yeah. so who cares? It's just a bunch of bullshit. You just talk shit your whole life and then disappear one day well you know but it's it's good i think there's something to to be said for trying to live with a sense of immediacy like trying to uh like round down because everybody always does you're right everybody you talk to people they're like i think everybody sort of tells themselves like i'm gonna live to be 100 i'm gonna be the one but you're like no i'm gonna get i'm gonna get to 50 and maybe you have like a greater sense of urgency in your life yeah you get something from it yeah i got a lot going on i don't have time to live to to 100 too busy uh, plus it depends what the quality of life is like what if the last 20 years you're sort of like a you know uh, invalid yeah i've never seen anybody who's like 80 years old like slam dunking so but there are people there are people who like well into their 90s or you yeah. know even some centenarians who are pretty pretty uh vivacious yeah that's true but that's that's got to just be genetics right yeah yeah they you know they they got they got cursed to live to be 90 years old but... everybody they know dies yeah, and they're just like still writing beautifully scrolled letters to their friends. Please come and kill me. You know? <laughs> help, help me, help me. I'm like beautiful cursive. Well, I want to say my grandmother lived to be in, into her 90s, and she was sort of ready. She like every so many people. Yeah, it's gotta be like that. Like you just wake up, like, all right, who can I convince to just <laughs> hit me with their car <laughs> and make it look like an accent so nobody feels bad? Yeah. So socially, it sounds like you have like a pretty good social life, which is not always the case with writers. Like you get out, you said, uh, and see people on a regular basis. Yeah, even though, I do. even though you're doing all this work, you're working a day job, you're writing book a book a year. That's a lot in and of itself, and you're married. So it's like, well, what you just make plans with people. You got to. That's what I think you have to do if you're going to be social as an adult. You've got to really work at it. Yeah, you got to like force them. You got to force them to see you, which is fun. It's fun to force people to do stuff. You say force, but then as soon as, you know, as soon as they're like locked into it, uh, you know, everybody just needs a little push to do something social with, you know, with you or around you. It's like, oh, there's just so many reasons not to even go out of the house anymore with like, you know, you can stream any movie from my TV now. I, I can't believe that. I didn't have to go to the video store and rent a crappy movie anymore. I can just push a button and it's there. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, basically what I think, what my approach to making an art project is I really don't work on it for more than two or three hours a day, whether it's writing it or editing it or whatever. So 
uh, you know, I'll come, I'll come home from work and I might have a couple, I might have a little bit of time to mess with it. I might have an hour and a half or two hours and then she's going to be home and, and we'll, we'll just go out and we'll do something. We'll go and meet up with people or, or whatever. Or if I know I have to come home from work and I'm going to take the subway somewhere, I'll just write on this, I'll write on the subway for a little while on the way to see people just to kind of keep the project moving along. Uh, I think that's mostly what it only is. It's like so easy just to delay a project and and kind of like lose the momentum of it just because it's sometimes it's annoying. It's so annoying to have to like be working on this thing. You just want it to be done. So, okay. So here's a, this is a question I have then. If you're working in these short bursts and you're working on your phone and it's kind of, you know, it's loose. You're letting your, your, um, what is it? Is it your subconscious mind or your unconscious mind? You know what I'm talking about. You're kind of letting that mind do the work. Yeah. And you're putting it all down mm-hmm. with the idea that you're going to fix it up later. Yeah, I'm going to fix it up. But also, every time I, the more time I spend with actually making the stuff, I just kind of like try to make my first drafts as good as I can. As but good as you can. As good as I can without, you know, slowing myself. But if I were to read one, would it make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, when, we're, when we're done with the interview, I'll show you uh, what I've wrote last night or whatever on the, uh, but I mean like the individual pieces, like the individual days work, I could see making some cohesive sense, but does the whole thing, is there a unity to the whole thing? Are you really telling like a story that I could follow or is it something that you put together in the edit? I think, I think, yeah, I think you could follow along. Like right now I'm writing, um, I've, but also my work is kind of changing right now with like, with the memoir I did work. Um, yeah, I'm starting to do telling, stories nonlinear, which I find interesting for a lot of reasons, especially writing a memoir, because a lot of times you'll be writing about the past and you'll be writing about what's happening to you right now. And those those two things kind of, um, they catch up with each other. One gets ahead, one slows down. And while you're living in the present, your past just kind of, you're thinking about that too. So it's all happening kind of like in, in a kind of cohesion. So like, it makes sense to me to write a memoir jumping around in time. Just for some reason, it just feels more natural to me. It's the way memory works. And the that's way the way can... memory works. Yeah. And that's the way I think a lot of people actually live their lives. So when I did work, um, you know, it, it would, and it's the way that's laid out to the book doesn't really give you a total, it doesn't tell you like the date and then you'll read the piece. It's just kind of like it goes through one anecdote or one story and then it jumps to something else and it's another anecdote and it might be something from when I was 11 years old mowing lawns or it might be something from when I was, the next thing might be I'm like 32 years old working in a nuclear power plant and it all just kind of jumps around. So I've been following that. I'm writing another memoir um, with more of my um, my stories from childhood with me and my little brother where we would just, just get in like these, these really – violently fun things we would do as kids just destroy stuff and stealing my dad's playboy magazines and then lying to him about who stole them and <laughs> and just you know and like framing each other for things and and so jumping around in time and writing like that if you're thinking about a project even like a novel that you're working on you don't have to write it in order okay so how do you know when you're done then like, at what point do you say, okay, I've got enough of these days, like, you know, at, at work on the loose leaf paper or on the train typing into mm-hmm. my phone? At what point do you say, okay, I'm done. I'm ready to edit. You just got nothing else to say for a while. You just have that feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm out of things to say with this. And if you're the type of person who never knows when that is, you just have to set a hard deadline. You have to say, I have, you know, maybe I'm ridiculous where I say I'll, I'll write a first draft of a novel and 
45 days something. I like to set those things up. That's a little ridiculous. That's a little excessive. And setting that kind of deadline doesn't mean it's going to be good work for the first few years of trying to work like that. But you might, after time and experience, you might be able to do a decent or good first or second draft in 45 days. It's just doing it. It's like uh, somebody becomes an electrician and they suck for five years and then they kind of get just experience. It's just doing it, going through the motion of doing the work and trying to um, figure out how, how you work the best you do. So I decide when I'm done just now, nowadays, a hard deadline or I just peter out and decide I'm done talking about this now. I have nothing else to add. And I also know in the back of my mind that my favorite part of a project ever is is wrapping it up with a second draft and trying to get a publisher on the hook to put it out. And then once the publisher puts it on the hook to release it, I love to do this thing that I call it connecting the dots, where I'll go through my manuscript and now someone's interested and they're going to put this book out, where I'll be like, okay, cool. So I got these people who are behind the work and now I can do whatever I want to it because they're not going to say no now. So, I mean, they might, but you can delete things, move things around. You can just go crazier. At that point, I go crazier with the project. If I have somebody attached to it, I just go bonkers with it and I try to make it, I try to squeeze things in there I shouldn't say or I shouldn't do, things to make it more of a uh, a viscerally exciting experience of reading a book because I think you really have to sell people with reading a book anymore. You can't just... You got to entertain people. You got to entertain people and you have to... Uh, you got to take bigger risks with things. And so I love just connect. I try to make connect connective tissue all through the work and, and make, make space in my second drafts up and up until the, the final draft. And how many drafts do you usually do? I Can usually do like a, th- a third, a third and final draft with the publisher. And then hopefully someone will copy edit it, you know, yeah, yeah. but small press sometimes, you know, you're, you're lucky if, if you get, uh, if you get to actually copy editing and it's just kind of down. It's down to like, you know, if grandma read it, if grandma's not dead. Hey, grandma, is it? <laughs> you still see alive? Any, do you see any crazy typos in here, grandma? <clears throat> so what about get like what about uh, post publication? Do you get invested in reviews? Do you pay attention to any of that? Like what people are saying on Amazon? I'm invested in in interviews. Um, doing interviews because I think that's the only thing that really matters right now with um, with promoting a book or. It's the only thing I care about when someone's book comes out. I'll read their I'll read their interviews. I'll listen to the podcasts they go on. I don't read if somebody reviews your book at Publishers Weekly or what's the other one? Kirkus. You can pay Kirkus to review. I don't read those things. I don't. I don't. I don't even read your book review in the New York Times review. That doesn't interest me for some reason. I'm just not. But I care about the. Usually, I mean, if I care about the author at all, I'm really into reading the interviews because sometimes people say things they shouldn't say in interviews, and that's awesome. Yeah. You know, I can get a sense of of this person in the world and not their the product that is even like a review anymore. There, there's never bad reviews. They're just like, but there's never good reviews either. Even good, I mean, occasionally there's like a, a uniformly glowing review, but like the basic structure for a positive review is, yeah. I liked X, Y, and Z, blah blah blah, and then they hedge their bets at the end. And they say, but there are some weak spots, and you just you're just I'm just sort of left feeling like, eh. yeah, because cr- cr- there's no real. There's no real criticism anymore, and it's just kind of like 
people complain about not getting coverage for their books and stuff. It's like, no, that's, that's fine, you know? That doesn't exist anymore. How can you complain about something that doesn't exist? It's just like, the I, world, I like, I like the book world has changed. Uh, yeah, know? but book, there are book reviews. I'm like now revising myself because there are some pieces of literary criticism that I find genuinely exciting as writing. But yeah. it, it almost always happens when the critic inserts his or her personal life into the review. Yeah, and then you're reading you're reading something different. You're reading creative nonfiction, um, where someone is doing something. Uh, they're making art. They're making art out of someone else's art, and that's a, that's a valid thing. But generally, there's no money in criticism anymore, so it's kind of gone away. Um, so yeah, anyway, so I'm not really. Uh, I don't get invested either in. Goodreads reviews or Amazon reviews, like some people get whacked out about that. They're like, oh my God, my book got a two-star review or one-star review. It's like, I what I do whenever I read an amazing book that's changed my life, I mean, literally, I'll read a, a, a classic book by a real deal writer who's, the book came out in 1973 or whatever, and and it's no one I know, it's no one I could ever know, and it's just a book that I have no attachment to. I'll read this weird thing and I'll be like, Wow. That blew my mind, and that was amazing. And so I'll go and I'll write my little review on Goodreads, five stars for this thing. And then what I love to do, I go and I read all the one-star reviews. I read all the one-star reviews, and I just think about these people don't—they're not—they don't live on the same planet as me. They don't understand what I understand. I don't understand what they understand. So when I see other, when I see authors complaining about people who have given their book a one-star review, I'm like. I want to find out where you live and I want to come to your house. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm going to do with you, but we need to have a face to face. Okay. <laughs> it just drives me crazy. Cause it's like, I don't know. You'll, you'll see like these people get so hurt. They get so hurt by other people who don't, they don't like have a fully formed idea about what the, what art is. And they'll, they'll give you a one star review and it's like, let it go. Who cares? Because like, the thing, here's the weird thing. Like, you probably have writer. You have a lot of writer friends. You might have like writer friends who you like very much personally, whose work might not be for you. Like, not everybody's work is for you, and it applies to everybody. Yeah. Is it? I mean, do you think it's possible to like really like somebody personally but not be in love with their writing? I can't be. Fr- I can be friends with anybody, um, but I can't be friends with people whose art I don't respect. Uh, I can't um, spend time with anybody who's. If I if I read their their short stories or whatever it is, and I'm like, oh, this person's really a lousy person, because I don't, I don't know. It's almost like offensive to me, like that someone would do art I don't like and be my friend. Uh, but I'll hang out with anyone else, you know. Like uh, I'll hang out with somebody who who beats dogs or. <laughs> <laughs> but if you write a shitty poem, you're dead if to me. If you write a bad poem, I'm going to hang out with the guy who drowned the kittens. No, I don't know. But it's, you don't seem. But you don't seem like somebody who's like super damning in your criticism. You just mean nah. that the, the art has to come from the right place. It can't yeah. be. I'm not. I'm not. I'm the worst critic in the world. That's like I complain about critic. I complain about criticism going away, but I didn't really complain with a capital C because I'm not a critic. I just. I'm I've, I'm just like I usually enjoy stuff um, or I try to you know I try to find a way to trick myself into thinking oh, that was better than I thought you know so whatever I mean it's like um, I'm kind of jealous of these people that are like really they can tell you why something's bad and then they can explain it 
and give you like the theory behind why it sucks. So I'm just like, ah, I just have like a gut feeling that that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't have, like, write uh, six thousand words about why it sucks. Yeah, no, yeah, I just have, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. That's just like most of my Twitter. I, I have like a I have a diviner rod that kind of like went kind of crazy towards that thing that tells me it sucked. <laughs> Uh, so do you like writing nonfiction as much as you like writing fiction? Do you have a preference? Um, well, it seems like I like not writing nonfiction as much as I like fiction, but I'm not sure yet. It's kind of, it's kind of new to me. Um, I think I like it. I'm not sure. I've been writing the fiction longer and that seems to be like, uh, you know, you have to use your imagination more. Uh, so some, something different happens when you do that, where like you just can do anything and you can tangent off. But I've, I'm finding you can do that with nonfiction too, in a way. My big thing is like, I think I like. I was talking to somebody the other day who has um, has a literary agent, and the agent was like talking to talking to this friend of mine about how they have to write a beach read, and the friend was telling me. <laughs> <laughs> so the the agent is pretty much like. I want a beach read from you and until you write a beach read, like we don't need to talk about any of your other projects. Just oh give God. me a beach read. Uh-huh. But, and yeah, so the friend was saying that she was like really like, like, I don't know, like healthily upset, upset about it or whatever. I think you should write a beach read. Bob. That's what I said. I said, I said, well, if someone told me to write a beach read, I would, I would write a beach read. You should and write a beach read. That'd I really be, should. You yeah. should call it beach read. Beach read. Yeah. <laughs> and I would, but what I like to, what I like, how I like to think of art is, I like to think, like like we're talking about well, the difference between fiction, nonfiction. Even like you want to throw a beach read in there. You want to say somebody told me read, they they want to read a, a science fiction novel from me one day. I said I'm probably going to do it one day if like if it becomes a joke enough to me because I think it's amazing to try to like. And this 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 goes for a lot of. Um, it ties in too with like I, I read a lot of people upset about like submission guidelines and this and that. Like they want something from you and you have to give it to them in the in the box that they want it from you in. And it's like all that stuff is a joke. Saying something somebody wants a beach read from you is like you can twist that into something to give to them and they don't even know what they want until they see it. You just have to give them something that maybe they don't even know they want yet. And if, and if the label on it says beach read, that's fine. Or if like this literary magazine wants to read a short story that's going to transcend the boundaries of human existence and change <laughs> the way you think about life, death and everything. It's like, what the hell does that mean? All you have to do is give them something that they don't know they want and do it in a way that you don't even know what the hell you're doing either. But it's just your thing. You have to just do your dumb thing i sound like i smoked weed <laughs> <laughs> maybe i should i think you should i think you should write a, a try like like sit down to try to write a beach read i think that would be a fun project yeah i guess a beach read is just like it's someone saying it's like a th- um it's it's a lame project like i need you to write a lame project <laughs> just until you can deliver a really lame project something somebody wants to read in the summer on the beach when i was younger and better looking um i went to my wife had a um, – she had a thing with this one job she worked at where she could get to go to conferences and, like, learn things. And they would be, like, actively into her just going and studying different things and learn different things. And she had, would have, like, a, a credit per year of money she could spend to go do conferences and stuff. And the one year she told me, she's like, oh, there's, like, this agent conference where you go and they they do, like, you learn how to pitch your novel and do all this stuff. 
And so I went to it, and it didn't cost me any money, and it was great. And it was the most desperate people you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and they were all ravenously shoved into this um, this ballroom or whatever at a Radisson in, um, in New York City, and they were just all frothing at the mouths and trying to learn how to um, you know write the next big – whatever the next big novel is going to be. And next big beach read. The next big beach read or – or whatever it was. And um, I just remember I talked to this agent and uh, she said to me, because you get your like speed pitch thing, you know, she was like, okay, what's your elevator pitch? And I, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. My wife, like uh, she had this, I, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't really have one, I guess. And she's like, you're very handsome. You should write a romance novel. <laughs> and I was like, I should. I should write a romance novel. I want to read I still, it. Yeah. If I get back in shape and I and I look good again, I'm going to write a romance novel. Right now, I'm not attractive enough to write a romance novel. Come on, man. You only you have 14 years left to live. You look good. I got. If I get all cut up again, I'm gonna I'm gonna write some I'm gonna write some sexy stuff, and it's gonna be great. Just because that one weird literary agent told me to. Well, listen, man. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Uh, glad you made it out to Southern California again. And I look forward to seeing whatever uh, you put out next. All right. Love you, Brad. All right, guys. There you have it. That's Bud Smith. His new book is called Work. It's available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. You can track him down online at budsmithwrites.com. His Twitter handle is at Bud underscore Smith. The new book, again, is called Work. It's a memoir. Go get your copy right now. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. Go get that app. If you uh, want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Weigh in. What have you. If you want to uh, support the program, don't forget the uh, web address is Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod so i've been second guessing myself i was getting my head ready for these uh closing remarks and i was thinking back to the monologue it's like whenever i have this conversation about uh food choice vegetarianism whatever veganism whatever or anything that i I feel like uh, i spend a lot of my time thinking about religion, Buddhism. I, I find myself in this sort of like apologetic mode almost, or like wishy-washy mode, or not wanting to come off seeming like a proselytizer, which I think is a good impulse. But I also, I'm second-guessing myself, like, was I too wishy-washy? I feel pretty comfortable with where I am. I, I'm, I like the choice that I've made. I don't spend a lot of time, like, uh, I mean, I guess you always should sort of be questioning, but I don't spend a lot of time, like, in a self-critical mode about it. Maybe a little bit of doubt here and there. Anyway, I think the larger the larger point about consumption and uh, thinking deeply about uh, patterns of consumption, what to consume, how much to consume, what that consumption does to us, both individually and collectively, the way in which we're all interrelated, people, animal, mineral, plant, the way the... Uh, Consequences of our actions apply to uh, the collective rather than just ourselves and so on and so forth. I think those are uh, very good things to be thinking about. It's good to be conscious of uh, what you're consuming. 
And, uh, you know, I'm saying this to you, but I'm saying it to myself as well. It's also very easy to go on autopilot. We all do it. You know, look at me on Twitter. You think I'm sitting there in a state of, like, heightened consciousness 100% of the time? A lot of that is just unconscious. Dopamine, whatever you want to call it. It's very easy. It's default mode. i got to improve. Everyone's got to improve. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 